Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Military Historians or People 2. We just want to remind you that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and those of our guests. We really appreciate you listening. Please share and enjoy the show. Brian, we should just go ahead and get, get to it. Yeah, you want to, you have any shout outs? Yeah, um... Okay, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I have to give a shout out to the Texas Rangers. Uh, you know, they won their first World Series uh, over over Arizona. And as a kid, I attended many Texas Ranger games at the old uh, Arlington Stadium, which I think was a double A ballpark when they first started that they had to convert. But that's in the 1970s. And gosh, Gaylord Perry, Fergie Jen- Jenkins, uh, Toby Hara, um, Jim Sundberg, who inspired me to be a Little League baseball catcher in the late 70s, right? And that, that worked out well for me. Um, it didn't go anywhere. But uh, but anyway, uh, good for them, right? And and we're building, we're getting actually a Texas Rangers, I think, triple A team or double A team here in Spartanburg. And they just broke ground for a new new stadium to be built downtown here, which is pretty amazing. Uh, right. You know, it's a great, great development project. So, you know, who knows? Might have to attend a few games, games of that. But again, not a huge baseball, you know, fan. But I did watch a couple of the games, and uh, they're actually watchable now because it's so much quicker with the pitch clock and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's like yeah, I think that makes two and a half difference. hour, three hour commitment instead of a, yeah. like a, you know, day and a half commitment, <laughs> like it could, yeah. get, it could get right. Anyway, that's all I got. You got anything? I don't have anything. I'll just, uh, I'll introduce Roger. Yeah, let's introduce Roger. All right. So Roger Reese is professor of history and director of graduate studies at Texas A&M University. He specializes in the social history of the Imperial Russian and Soviet militaries, and he has written seven books. Is that the right count? It is. Roger. All right. Seven books on the Russian armed forces. He received his BA in history from Texas A&M and moved to Austin to earn his MA and PhD in history from the University of Texas. Roger also served with the United States Army from 1981 through 1984. His first book, Stalin's Reluctant Soldiers, A Social History of the Red Army uh, from 1925 to 1941, appeared with the University Press of Kansas in 1996. He published Why Stalin's Soldiers Fought, The Red Army's Military Effectiveness, Effectiveness in World War II with Kansas in 2011, and then The Imperial Russian Army in Peace, War, and Revolution, 1856 to 1917 with Kansas in 2019. The latter won the Norman B. Tomlinson Jr. Book Prize of the World War I Historical Association. His most recent book is Russia's Army, a history from the Napoleonic Wars to the war in Ukraine, and that is fresh out with Oklahoma right now. Roger's articles have been published in leading journals that include the Journal of Slavic Military Studies, War and Society, and the Journal of Military History. In 2003, he was awarded the Society for Military History's Moncado Prize for the outstanding article in military history for his piece, Red Army Professionalism and the Communist Party, 1918 through 1941. He sits on the editorial boards of the Journal of Slavic Military Studies, Canadian American Slavic Studies, and Histories. Roger is an exceptional teacher and received Texas A&M's University Distinguished Achievement Award in the area of teaching in 2009. Welcome, Roger. Good morning. Glad to be here. So uh, we we start off uh, by learning about you. So tell us where you're from. Uh, what your parents do? How'd you get into history? Well, I'm an army brat, so I'm kind of from everywhere or, or nowhere. Uh, depends on how you look at it. 
um, I actually ended up in Houston for high school. And that's how I got uh, connected to Texas A&M. My older sister uh, went there first uh, in engineering and brought home a boyfriend who was in the Corps of Cadets. Uh, <laughs> and I had always kind of thought about going into the military. And I, so I explored the ROTC program there and then you know went to Texas A&M to be in ROTC to get a commission. And that's kind of also now where my link to my historical profession comes in is as I was searching the catalog to pick a major. And of course, I always loved history, reading history, military history, just for fun growing up. Uh, I was looking for the major with the least amount of math. <laughs> and history was it. Weren't we all? Yeah, yeah weren't we all? <laughs> so that, uh, you know, kind of came together. Texas A&M, uh, history major, minimal math, uh, and on my way to the Army after graduation. So, did, so let me, let's back up a little bit. Uh, what, what did your folks do in the Army? Is, what, was one of your parents in the Army, I guess? I'm yeah, my dad was in the Corps of Engineers. Corps of Engineers, okay. Right. Uh, two tours of Vietnam, then retired. Yeah. Uh, and did that uh, did that mean that you got to grow up, um, you know, Europe, Asia, or were you mostly stateside? Uh, no, I actually spent uh, four years of my childhood in Germany. Okay. Uh, so I actually got the, the uh, my sisters and I all took German in high school for our, our language and then in college and uh, getting grad school, um, picked up Russian in graduate school there. So I'm going to assume that your experience learning Russian in graduate school was more legit than mine was. How, how was that? How'd you, how, how, how did you do the Russian in, in, in grad school? Well, actually, uh, it's like my last year on active duty, um, I started, I taught myself the, the alphabet. Okay. And there was a, a night class offered by, uh, uh, on post. I was at Fort Lewis, uh, the ninth ID at the time. And so I availed myself of that. So I kind of just got my feet wet before I showed up to grad school. Okay. Um, but I, I basically kind of got fully immersed in a, a summer school language program up there on, on campus there. So, yeah, it, it was maybe not that quick, but you know, quick and dirty. It, it was dirty. <laughs> um, I think my, my, my language skills are, are completely adequate to do research passively to read. Right. But if you want me to communicate in Russian, I, I sound like a kindergartner. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I got to get around Russia just fine. You know, I'll, you know, ask directions, give directions, even order food and beer, you know, uh, all the basic life necessities. But to have an intellectual conversation in Russian, the, those words and that construction is is beyond my capability. Yeah, well, I so I've, I've told this story before on the podcast, but I think you'll really appreciate this considering being in Texas for so long. So I, you know, I went to Bowling Green uh, for, for grad school and my dissertation was on early US-Soviet relations, looking at the diplomats who were in Russia during the revolution and the civil war. And so I, I was like, okay, I, I gotta do Russian. And I had done, of course, coming from tech, I grew up in Texas and, you know, Spanish, I had Spanish, you know, that was no problem. But uh, so I, I audited a bunch of Russian language courses there at Bowling Green and, and the, the woman I was working with was great. And, and she understood that I needed reading as, as opposed to speaking. And that, that helped a lot. But when it came time to do the test, right, to do the, the translation test, which I did dictionary translation, there was no way I was going to do it without that. Mm -hmm. um, she apparently knew my level because somehow she found 
an article in Russian, a journal article in Russian on the Alamo for me to translate. And that saved my ass <laughs> because <laughs> I was like, okay, I think I've got the general story here. <laughs> and, 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 and I, and I passed, I passed. Um, and of course, ironically, what I needed more than anything was French because that was still, you know, kind of the semi-formal language of diplomacy at the time. Right. Uh, but the Russian helped a lot because I was able, there, there were in the archives, especially the ambassador's papers, there were a lot of like flyers and pamphlets and, and even some posters and things. And of course, having the Russian, I was able to figure that out. But I joke now, at least now I can read, I can read the uh, banners and shop signs and Dr. Shivago every time the movie's on Turner Classics. So I'm like, hey, that's a pharmacy. I know what that is, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty pathetic. So I'm glad for you. Uh, it was, it's, it's been obviously, and you've used it a ton more because I, I got into Vietnam and I just, I just lost, uh, you know, lost the skill. You don't use it, you lose it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, mine, mine peaks and valleys. It, it, yeah. it, it recedes at times when I'm working on projects or just not working on a project where I don't use my Russian, then I have to. So why, why Russia? I mean, you, you had time in Germany growing up. Um, obviously, you know, a lot of your formative years are taking place in the Cold War. Did you initially look at it as kind of like a career advancement opportunity because you were in the military? I mean, what was it about Russia that grabbed you aside from uh, being Cold War? Yeah, I have to I'd say one of the, the, the prompts you, you kind of gave me in, in the email was um, like your uh, my career. And so my career, I think, has been like complete serendipity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, stuff just happens and I take advantage of it. So um, my original intent going off to college was to be a career army officer. So I uh, didn't really think too much beyond that. But I, I did one day in passing. Well, I took a couple of uh, Russian and Soviet history classes uh, as uh, undergraduate. And I, I don't. I, I just mentioned to my professor that you know when I'm done with the army, like when I retire. But I just said when I'm done with the army, yeah, I like to get a PhD in history. And I had no idea what that was all about. It just seemed like a cool thing. Yeah. When I was you know 21 years old, you know, uh, complete ignorance about what that. I'm, and he said, "Oh, interesting. So what would you be interested in?" I said, "Oh, the American West, cowboys and Indians. I love that stuff." <laughs> Uh, my family's originally from Idaho, and we spent a lot of time there with my grandparents and out in the desert and doing all that stuff. And he he was a frontiersman sort of a guy. Uh, and my uh, this is my Soviet history professor just kind of like if he'd had water in his mouth, it would have been a spit a, a spit take. Just, oh, that's ridiculous. So, you know, American historians are a dime a dozen. There's a hundred for every job application. You know, if you want to get a PhD and actually get a job. Soviet history, that's what you need to do. And I'm like, well, yeah, if I got a PhD, I'd, I'd want a job with that. And he explained <laughs> to me, so this was in 1980, 81, that by the time I got done with the army, and he was thinking I was just going to do one tour, uh, like three years, get out of the army, do your PhD. When you hit the market, there will be a ton of job openings for Soviet historians. Because he did the math, right, by, by around 1990 or whatever, gonna have a whole bunch of retirements because the field was full of people who went into it at the beginning of the cold war and their their time would just be up and ready to retire and so i just kind of filed that away went off to the army and decided you know three years of active duty that was that was that 
that satisfied my scratch that itch. Yeah, my, my yearning for a military experience, and I, and I'm really glad I did it. And the whole time I was thinking about the uh, the Soviet Union and whatever. Uh, but again, back to my professor, I was so intrigued by Soviet history at the time. It's just like how different those people view life and handle life mm-hmm. from us. It's just completely contrasting. And and I'm like, like, what's wrong with these people? You know, <laughs> you know. Uh, I, I, because we're obviously right you know that's that's the thing yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I just wanted to like figure that out and so when i decided to ets and go into the reserves i thought and go to grad school i thought you know that's and and then like oh yeah getting a job that's part of the whole deal so that's kind of how i got into soviet history is uh, that undergraduate cast that conversation with my professor and then who, who was that chester dunning so i'm trying to think time time wise um when did when did betty unterberger get to a&m do you know uh, 1970 she's 70s right yeah mid 70s so did you have her for anything did do you remember or? uh i i knew her as an undergraduate didn't take any classes right of course she were colleagues because she was still yeah. there when you when yeah, you got yeah. there, she, right? she retired about seven or eight years after i got on the faculty there yeah okay Okay. So some of her books were some of the earliest things I read about, you know, the interventions and stuff right. in the Czechoslovak Legion and all that. In fact, I think it was her, you know, her and George Kennan, right? You know, I read, right. I read their stuff as an undergrad and it, that kind of, you know, turned me on to all that. Real quick. Uh, so you, you were in the, the Corps of Cadets. Yes. What, what, what was that experience like? Uh, I'd say it was formative for me. I, yeah. I really loved it. Um, it's a seven day Corps and wear a uniform. Of course, it changed over time. But when I was in the Corps, when it was a real Corps, not yeah. like it is now. <laughs> right. now. Um, yeah, we wore our uniform seven days a week. You couldn't go into any building on campus in civilian clothes except the gym, you know. Right. Um, formation twice a day uh, during the week, uh, you know, morning formation, inspection, formation, march to the mess hall, uh, dining hall, eat, then go out to classes and uh we had the, you had been ROTC first couple of years, but then the second couple of years, you went to junior senior. You didn't have you didn't have to sign a contract. You could still stay in the Corps of Cadets. Oh, okay, interesting. Uh, so uh, obviously, I signed a contract, but uh, ROTC classes, you know, uh, right, your regular educational classes. But then you have your evening formation, march to chow, study uh, mandatory study time for freshmen and sophomores. Uh, then all the different Corps of Cadets activities, PT. Uh, you know, that's an ordinary camaraderie. Um, Did you have to go to all the home games, football games? Yeah, but I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? Well, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, sure. yeah, seriously, it's like sure. Aggie football. It's like right. I'm still addicted to, despite all the questions, second guessing about college football. Is it are they students or are they not? <laughs> still all in, huh? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I just turn a blind eye to all that and just try to enjoy the game. <laughs> oh, sure. So do you. Um, have a little extra cred in your classes when you got uh, cadets in there, if that they know that you were in the Corps of Cadets as well. Is that uh, well, not just the cadets? Uh, all, all the students appreciate yeah. the fact that oh, I, cool. I, I can sort of relate. I mean, my experience is now you know forty years on. Yeah, it's, still, still this is not my Texas A and M like it is now. So uh, yeah, uh, I don't, I don't try to push that at all. I, sure. I just wear my Aggie ring, which is a very big deal here. You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. And they yeah. see that and we all know it's like, okay. 
Um, no, Jim Wilbanks, you know, he was that way too. He's, you know, but you got that ring and it's like, oh gosh, you know, eh. <laughs> give it a break. <laughs> but he's fun to tease about it. Uh, but that's cool. That's really, that's really neat. I mean, that's a neat experience for you, I think. Right. Yeah. And it's but serendipity is like when yeah. I came on the job market, uh, there were a dozen openings for Soviet history. Uh, and the, the competition, I don't know, it was, wasn't that stiff, uh, Obviously, they somebody hired me. Um, there, there's one woman out of Stanford who got offered every single one of those jobs. Wow! <laughs> really? Didn't want an A&M. I, I was number two, uh, and she obviously turned down eleven of the jobs. So uh, <laughs> I was next in line and glad to have it. You know, so yeah. Please tell, please tell me that she's gone on to have a prolific career. No, I'm far. So she did not actually get tenure where she went and is not in the profession anymore. Wow. Okay. Uh, I have no idea why that is, but yeah, uh, but that actually that's the only job I got offered was the one at A and M, and I was like, take it, yeah, absolutely, God, love that, it. That well, yeah, I mean, worked out, yeah, I mean better. that's that, that's everyone's ways. dream, right? I mean, you if you love your undergrad, you 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 have these fantasies about going back and being on the faculty. You don't know at the time as an undergrad how how problematic that could actually be for you. <laughs> But um, but that's everybody's dream, and you got to do it. So I don't uh, know that many people who you know to to just get you caught up to speed on my story, you know, a little bit, uh, Roger. I so I, I went I went to the University of Texas. I, I started there in 1985 and and flunked out bigger than Dallas. I mean, I did it with style, and uh, and then finished up at East Texas State. You know, I grew up in Sulphur Springs. Uh, you know, between Dallas and Texarkana up there. And but but I don't know that many people who went to like undergrad at you know ut at austin or at college station and then went to grad school at the other like like did them both right do you know that many people who've done that i, I don't know that many well i kind of married the only one a family that did that yeah. um my wife and her brother and older sister uh all went to AM and then they went to ut for their their math their uh, mbas okay uh i could that that and, until AM mba program got up and running there was a uh, kind of a that, that's what you did you went to ut for your, your MBA. i guess you went to ut or probably smu I mean, it was probably it, right I um, think. yeah i don't know if that's so common anymore because the AM's mba program is it's really good good yeah. now it's, it's right. established right um but yeah I, I got a lot of flack when i was at ut for being an idea <laughs> at first you know so we overlapped i was there 80 84 to 90. okay so uh we were on campus for a year together yeah uh, but those six years I was enrolled at UT, I, I was on campus for the first four, then got married and moved to Houston to write my dissertation or whatever. Uh, those six years, A&M beat UT every single year. Yeah, well, I remember, yeah. I remember so that, that first year, I remember watching that game because you know, we had Jackie Sherrill, you know. Mm -hmm. And at the start of the game, everybody's like giving me all kinds of grief. <laughs> at the end of the game, okay, there was sullen looks on their part and i never heard anything else about aggie football for six more years you know? right right <laughs> well i think if we overlapped then i'm sure unless you were at, at abel's on 24th street uh having long island teas on a thursday afternoon we probably didn't cross paths <laughs> so oh gosh i have only the vaguest of memories of all that now thinking of timing you know, that with that job market, you know, they're anticipating it opening up like in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, you know, there's nothing going on in Russian history at that time at all. Dead, totally dead period, right? I mean, my gosh, what what an opportune moment, everything that's happening. 
I mean, you, you get into it. Yeah, you get into it at this wonderful time, right? All this started to spin. Was like, yeah. yeah, more access to more freedoms. Like, holy cow, we got to start you know, rewriting Soviet right. history. How, how, when, when did you go to Russia to, to do research? Uh, my first trip was in 93. Okay. Uh, uh, so it's, it's just two years after the collapse. Uh, right. Uh, or really, like all of 92, 18 months, really, because it didn't really fall apart. To yeah. And it was, so it was still very Soviet. Sure. Um, it's like I came back and I told my students, like the national color of, of Russia is drab. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, it is very depressed. People were not happy. A lot of unemployment and people trying to figure out capitalism, right. market economies and everything. But then every trip subsequently, it became less drab. All of a sudden, oh, wait, there's a neon sign. <laughs> you know, that's new. Um, and but so my first trip there was I was going to, uh, uh, yeah, spent the summer of '93 there doing archival work in Moscow with a brief stop in uh, uh, Leningrad. I knew I was St. Petersburg by that time, yeah, '91. Um, I noticed so my first trip uh, on the way to the archives every morning, I would count two categories of people: people smiling and people bleeding. And people bleeding always exceeded people smiling. It's like somebody just got beat up last night or on the way to the metro. I mean, seriously, fresh bandages, blood, bruises, whatever. Like, Jeez. I think things are not going well here. Uh, but then, you know, by the turn of the millennium, 2000, 2001, it's like hardly anybody bleeding and, and uh, most of the young people. Smiling, laughing, joking, right. a complete contrast in like less than 10 years of uh, they finally got their feet on the ground, up and running, a new perspective in, integrated with the world. And uh, it, it's like a, that visual transformation. Well, then they figure out that printing more rubles is not the answer to all the problems. Right. Um, you know, David Stone, Brian, David Stone never mentioned anything about bleeding. Uh, about about seeing the, the beat up people because he was there in the, in the mid 90s. You know? Yeah, I mean. Yeah. But I mean that's that's it's a rough still, time. Yeah, I mean I remember I had a. Uh, yeah, I was I'm I'm younger than you guys, but a friend of mine did a uh, wrestling exchange, oddly enough, in probably about '93, and mm. he had some stories like that. Um, but he also said that as a guy who took a suitcase full of Levi's, that he was about as wealthy as he's ever been in his life. <laughs> <laughs> that you could get just about anything that you wanted um, in exchange for some uh, some Levi's over there. So. Uh, that's crazy. So, Roger, how did you find working in the archives there? How did, how did that change over your time, your experience of doing that from the beginning? Uh, to... Well, part of it was it, it confirmed uh, every historian's dream. This material confirms my idea, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I worked with Sheila Fitzpatrick uh, hmm. at, at UT before yep. she went off to Chicago. Uh, and she, she did not authorize me to do a military history project. But I did it in any way and got away with it. Um, and uh, again, luckily, again, serendipity, the archive was open and things changed. Is uh, I spent a lot of my career uh, correcting other people's bad history. The, my aha moment was in the UT library, uh, the undergraduate library, Perry Castaneda Library. Do you ever mm -hmm. go in there? <laughs> I, 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 I have walked past it a couple of times. Oh, yeah. If you'd gone yeah. in, maybe you'd, you would have graduated. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but... <laughs> I was looking at the purges, 
no, actually, I was working on what she wanted me to do at first was to do a study of the, of the military industrial complex. I, was, I had no interest in that, but I got the, the League of Nations annual uh, reports about every every nation and stuff, and they looked in the military category. I looked at you know what they were producing. Every country self-reported the size of the military armament production. You know whatever you can trust that kind of thing. And I laid them all out from like 1927 to 1937, open to the Russian page. All these books on this big long series of tables, and I'm watching the size of the Russian army, the Soviet army, get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until all of a sudden, boom! It just goes skyrockets. And I'm standing, I'm like, that's unsustainable in human terms. It's like you can send out the little brown envelopes to draft literally a million guys where do you get the leadership for that right it's like that takes a long time a four-year <laughs> normal in, in there everywhere it's kind of four-year lead time for military schools rotc whatever they had their version I said you can't do that it's like what if you if you do that you're going to have problems when the germans show up in june of 41. and i'm thinking okay everybody's been blaming the purges since 1938 Right. And I'm thinking, okay, purges were bad. That was definitely an unhelpful situation. But this is worse. Whatever you did to procure officers, and then had, so that's why I, I completely went on that track. You know, so forget the military industrial complex. I'm going to find out what did they do to get leadership for this huge army that goes from a million to almost five million in three years. Yeah. Okay. And I, so, yeah, it's like, you know, they, they condensed their training, they went from four years to three months. They forced people to be officers, which is not really a good thing to do. Uh, party members, comp small members, NCOs, uh, promoting people from from the ranks. Oh, you've got six years of education. Boom, you're a lieutenant now. Go do that. Uh, and they still didn't have enough. They they were short like sixty seven thousand officers on day one of the war. Oh, and they, wow. they were only you know purges were only like less than twenty thousand. Some of the guys maybe, maybe even twelve thousand once you get guys coming back. Um, so those numbers don't add up. It's like you can't blame the purges for these all these officer um, shortages. So that's okay, you know, and that didn't go over well with a lot of people. Um, but they, oh, you're whitewashing Stalin. I'm like, no, I just, no, I'm just <laughs> it's like I didn't say that. <laughs> I'm just doing the numbers. Look right. at that. You know, when you have you don't have leadership, you don't have trained leadership or willing leadership, you're going to have problems. And so yeah. you have the purges plus this. And maybe even that expansion uh, was more important because without the purges, you still would have had tens of thousands of untrained, unmotivated officers and big gaps of, un of just no officers there to do the job. So uh, that, hmm. that, that kind of made my career because that, um, uh, I know you, you must be familiar with Jeremy Black, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so he read that book and he came to Texas A&M to give a talk. Bumped into me while I was went to his talk, and he's like, "I read your book. That's amazing stuff." I'm like, oh, okay, that's great. And, and who are you? <laughs> he doesn't do Soviet history, so how would I know that? Yeah, but he uh, was connected with Routledge, and they were starting a, a series. Actually, it wasn't Routledge; it was um, University College of London Press was looking for, mm -hmm. to start a series on military history. They asked him, who do you know for Soviet history? And he's like, this new guy. 
uh, I wasn't didn't have gray hair back then. And so that was my second book, which is still my most cited book, uh, the Soviet military experience, you know? Yeah. So then that just kind of like, now my name's out there. Uh, so Kansas did my first one. Then I did the second one with Routledge. When the Routledge bought University College London Press, and okay. they took over that series, I think less enthusiastically, but anyway. Um, I, I got a note from the editor at Kansas, like, um, hey, did, did we do something wrong? Why didn't you publish that, that book with us? I'm like, uh, no, they just called me and said, you want to do this book? And I'm like, why, why wouldn't I, you know? Yeah. So now Kansas, it's like, we have another book idea. You let us know. Um, and that led to my third book, which was actually, as I was writing the first one, I had like one chapter on the officers. I said, there needs to be a whole book on the officer corps of the Soviet Union. And so I pitched that and they were like, yeah, let's do that. Um, so that, you know, so it just kind of took off from there. Yeah. Uh, with the archives, um, I'm curious as to, you know, I guess I'm assuming the first couple of times you went there, it was probably pretty smooth working in the archives. Then did you have less than great experiences later or was there kind of an ebb and flow to it? Could you um, even tell what was going to be like when you went? Yeah, no, I had no clue what it was going to be like. They weren't that used to, to foreigners or sure. Americans there, but I wasn't the first one. Actually, I bumped into an Australian there, <laughs> but it, they, it was it was it was smooth. They're like, "Welcome, here's your card. Sign in here. Go up and and order your stuff." And uh, but it was it was actually interesting in a sense. It was the the the, the primitive nature of the situation mm -hmm. where. The microfilm readers, uh, you cranked by hand. Oh, yeah. The handle was broken, so you had to kind of twist things and <laughs> stick a you couldn't leave it on too long. You had to keep moving or turn it off because the light bulb would melt the microfilm if you didn't, you know, keep it going. Wow. wow. Um, one day, the on one of the readers I was using, the light bulb burned out. I went to the front desk, told the ladies, hey, light bulb's burned out. You got another one? I can just, like, oh, no, we got, we got to put in a work order on that. <laughs> and the light bulbs are right there, but we have to get a guy right. to do that. I'm like, okay. So Some things that. hadn't changed. You're done, you're done <laughs> for the day. <laughs> oh, that's, that's also part of it. It's like I, I was used to doing American archives or even British you go in, and my colleagues would complain, I had to wait two hours for my documents. It's like, go in on Monday, documents will be ready Wednesday. Yeah. yeah. Like, I want to hear you complain about two hours. You can go get a cup of coffee and walk around the block and come back. It's like, okay, I'm going to go do some sightseeing. So yeah. then I start ordering in advance so things would be ready when I finish with one type of thing. And I, I haven't been back since the 2000s uh, when Putin took over. Yeah. Um, he... I don't want to say a purge, but he he reassigned the uh, the more liberal, open, Western-oriented um, archive directors and put his conservative pro pro Russian people in, and things became less friendly. I don't know if you know the the story of Sarah Bad Badcock. Mm -mm. She was no. working on the 1920s, a British um, thing. Um, and so this was in the 20 teens, mid 20 teens, I guess, in there for a few weeks, I think. And then she was working in the archive uh, uh, and unceremoniously escorted out by police officers and told uh, her told she had 24 hours to get on the plane and go home. She was now persona non grata for requesting 
Soviet secret stuff, whatever, but it, it wasn't. It's completely on the list. Go get it. And she was asking, I mean, the stuff was about the, the 1920s or something like that. It's like, it's, yeah. it's been a while, you know, but it, that that was a message to the rest of us. It's like, you're, you're no longer welcome. So I, I didn't even bother, you know, trying to go back more recently, which is. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had uh, uh, a couple of my, well, one of my older mentors told me uh, that, you know, she had plans um, to go over and actually got there and uh, I think had gotten some grant money and arrived. And all of a sudden the the the, the archive was just closed with no explanation. And uh, it was kind of like, you know, just a sign on the door, like, you know, we're not opening up right now. And uh, meanwhile, you know, she <laughs> showed up over there to uh, to to do this work. Um, but I think, yeah, it sounds like got really dicey trying to to plan trips. Yeah, I don't know what that situation was, but that I, I timed it just right, you know, serendipitously again, because uh, yeah, I show up one morning like it's closed, like oh today's cleaning day, like don't no. you do that in the evenings or on the weekends? But like, no, we just close your archives for a day without telling you. But you know, once a month randomly, we're just going to clean, and then like two weeks in the summer, they'll just decide, okay, we're going to do block vacation. Everybody's going to go. We're just going to shut down the archives, and it's. It, it, they might give some a week's notice on that, but not if you're planning the trip back in in the spring to show up in the summer. Like right. you're not going to know that. Yeah. Show up and it's just yeah. They don't ex explain it. Just like we're closed, we'll be back open in two weeks. Whatever. Like go away. We don't answer to you. <laughs> like, wow. That, so it could have been political, or or it could have been just like the the randomness of of how Russians do things. So you you study the the social history of 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 the military. And um, as I, I do German history and, you know, you're probably familiar. One of the big things we always talk about is, uh, you know, this concept of German uniqueness, the German Zondervig. And and then people point out, you know, well, it, there's nothing exceptional about Germany unless you, um, you know, we, we, when you when you put the Soviet Union in there, all of a sudden Germany doesn't look exceptional. Right. Um, and so my, my question going off that. Um, what do you think is different for you as someone who studies the social history of, of the Soviet Russian military, as opposed to someone who's looking at the American or, or German military? I mean, um, you know, just in terms of the structures and, and the kinds of things that you, you've, you've found, um, what's different about social history with the, the Russian military? Um, the issue of relationships is, is, I think, probably the most profoundly different um, and, and it's still mysterious. I, I have good questions that I can't answer. But in, in more Western societies, um, the, the, the fundamental basis of, of any relationship is, is uh, mutual respect and, and respect. We're, we're all human beings here. And, and that comes with certain expectations of behavior uh, and care or uh, and following following rules, right? With just basic the unwritten social rules of how we treat people, and those seem to be very different in Russia. I and mean, it, 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 it it's just kind of a a given that the Russian military has no respect for the lives of their men, right? There's mass wave attacks and whatever. Um, that that's not a stereotype. That that is the norm from all the ages. Right? I mean, imperial era, Soviet era, current era. And that's reflected in the relationships within the military. Anybody with any authority, yeah, you know, and I don't want to tar with too broad a brush, but but kind of a, a broad brush. Uh, it just seemed normative to um, 
just not really give a damn about your your subordinates. And generals sacrifice colonels, colonels sacrifice majors and captains, and it just goes all the way down. And it's also, I mean, the idea of rules uh, governing society, but just rules in general, uh, it's kind of an Eastern European thing, but it's more the further east you go, the, the more extreme it gets, that uh, Russians just don't really believe in rules. I've guessed that this maybe comes back from the old Tsarist era, uh, where people making the rules were always making them to benefit themselves and disadvantage others. And maybe that just, they haven't quite got past that. So when anybody is confronted with a rule by a superior, they're like, okay, this is about you having power over me and I'm going to resist that. <laughs> but then they'll turn around and make rules for their subordinates, you know, and like, don't you dare, you know, but it's, it's the same relationship the, the whole way. Uh, people expect that someone is trying to exploit them and they're going to use their power to their best ability to exploit the people below them. It, it, sound, it sounds like a provost's office. I I said that out loud. I think there's definitely parallel. I mean, we we can't say any society is immune from people abusing their authority. Yeah. Uh, The consequences just seem to be extreme in the millions of lives that that are lost in in Russia. So so in that construct, then, what what is the path for advancement, say, for an officer? Uh, Suck up. Well, like any organization, suck up to your superior. Yeah. And make sure you get your job done no matter how you much you have to lean on or victimize your subordinates. One of the things my students ask, we talk about, you know, kind of the differences between Nazism and Stalinism. And um, and there are obviously many. Uh, but one of the things I say is that, you know, according to my understanding, with Nazism, the enemies are, are pretty clearly defined, right? You know, you know where you stand. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case with Stalinism. Is that a fair thing to say, especially based on what you just said, is that there there is a whole lot more kind of guessing game um, and, and you don't really know where you stand in the system? Right. And that that's, what, you know, I think people have touched on it a little bit. There was like just tremendous amounts of mental illness going around in the Stalin era because people just never knew, am I going to be promoted tomorrow or arrested or promoted and then arrested? Yeah. <laughs> given a medal and then sent to the camps. Yeah. Because uh, there was no clear sign that you were in the good graces for good, that the wind kept shifting, the sand shifted under people's feet. No matter what you did, you, you could never be sure. And we did, we don't know. We can't say what was going on in Stalin's mind. And, and the, when I teach Soviet history, I, I make a, a big deal about saying is Stalinism was bigger than Stalin. He had a lot of people in the party, in the government, who believed in the direction he was going, and they added their agenda to his. Um, one, I have an, an original, a, a copy of an original document signed by Stalin and Yezhov and some other high party members, you know, Yezhov being head of the NKVD at the time, in which um, a, a, a regional party leader uh, is a telegram sent to Stalin's like, Okay, you gave us this, we were allowed this quota of people to arrest, a quota of people, of those who we could execute. And that's not enough. We want more, we want to raise our, our arrest quota by this and our execution quota by that. So that's a whole, the other way of looking at it is like, yeah, Stalin was extreme. He got the ball rolling. He wanted to find these people to kill him. 
And then people out there are like, no, we want to kill a lot more people than that. So this system was the Stalinist system was vastly supported from below by people with authority, uh, power who want to extend that and, and make their imprint over their fiefdom or whatever they had going on out there. Um, which adds to like, okay, these innocent people were arrested. Is that Stalin's idea? Or am I being arrested because of a local official? Because his agenda. Yeah. Are there competitions? There are rivalries between different local officials. So I'm going to have your people arrested so I can get my people into those jobs. All that was going on. So there's just so many layers of this that people, again, it was like, I don't know. Am I, am I on the right team? Yeah. Well, you think how vast that whole system was, both military and just bureaucratic. I mean, just what you mentioned those, those there, there must be just hundreds of levels of bureaucracy and 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 all these ambitious apparatchiks and, and you name it um it's like it's incredible to me that anybody let's say 10 layers above could have any idea of really what was going on 10 layers below below right. them so you know, think of stalin you know there's, you're right. There's probably all sorts of people out there just just basically being independent operators as much as they could within that that system. So, so that's what you don't really see with Nazism. We see it, yeah. it's much more predictable. That, that yeah. Germans, I think Western Europeans respect hierarchy. It's more regulated. Yeah. 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 And, well, they, and people are like, okay, this is where I fit, and I'm going to work within that, and right. and that's gonna, you know I'll create some stability, predictability. Yeah, the right. Russians. Again, yeah. when I say that, people say, oh, you're whitewashing Stalin. It's like, no, I'm just saying there's a lot more people to blame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah. not taking any blame away from him. We're just saying, let's just get, you know, point the finger at everybody who needs to have the, the, the finger pointed at them. Yeah. Do you think that's still uh, kind of a, an issue today in Russia uh, today? In, in what way? What well, mean? just the, 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 the decentralization is, is it decentralized or centralized? In other words, do do regional governing officials have that sort of leeway or that they can interpret what they think Putin wants to, to be happening? Well, uh, so when the Soviet Union collapsed and they created, Yeltsin took over, they, they did create a federal system. Right. Where regional governments were independent operators, kind of like our state mm -hmm. governors. They had that kind of authority. And Putin has steadily eroded that to re-centralize everything right okay so i mean uh regional governors used to be elected now they're appointed so that they know they answer directly personally to putin right mm. um and if they don't tow his line they they get replaced that they used to be they just got replaced since the war started they might fall downstairs or, or fall out right. a window um, or a plane might you know blow. yeah for for a, just voicing an alternative view of a, of a situation, but so the situation like a Stalin situation could replicate itself. It's like to Stalin, uh, Putin's not always all that clear, you know. It's like which way he what the agenda is that that he's pushing. Um, now supporting the war that's pretty clear, but uh, they have much less uh, leeway to do things their own way. But they have total power over those regions. They they hire and fire people. Putin has recreated, well, this is interesting. You could, the FSB, the old KGB got split into three different groups. FSB, um, then there's another one that does foreign affairs and another one, I'm not sure what it does. But uh, what he's done particularly to consolidate his personal power that he can use to victimize whoever he wants is you probably heard of the National Guard, the Roscardia. Mm -hmm. He is the head of it. 
that it answers directly to him. Uh, then, then, which is not again, the Russians like the lines of authority is, is and and whose responsibility are just always confused. But you, you have local police. You still have the Ministry of the Interior and, and those troops. Uh, but then you have this Roskvardia, which is like it's, it's the riot police and whatever border guards and all kinds of other things answering directly to him. And so they can just show up and override all local authority to carry out whatever orders he wants. Okay. I, I just was doing the numbers on this. I uh, came across about a month ago. Um, their authorized strength is like 950,000 men, which is as big as the army was before the war started. That's, that's how concerned he is about maintaining his authority and yeah, his power. Yeah. He has yeah. his own private army. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't doesn't respond to local authorities. He can just show up and do his bidding. It's like, so that, that is sort of Stalinist. I and mean, Stalin worked through the secret police. Now um, Putin worked. They still have the KGB or well, the FSB. And uh, like that guy who was in charge of foreign intelligence, you know, uh, remember he got thrown in jail mm-hmm. last yeah. year for a few months. You know, like, so he's got them. Make sure they know <laughs> who's calling the shots on that. So. That that is Stalinist in in orientation. That that type of centralized uh, co- coercive power. Well, let's uh, look at your uh, your your recent book, uh, Russia's Army. Uh, covers a long period, right? Napoleonic, you know, to to the to the present war in, in Ukraine. One, what was the genesis of that? And and since it is a pretty long swath of time, how long has it taken you to to pull this pull that thing together? Uh, so this, this is actually about six years, maybe seven. Yeah. Uh, it, it got pub- the publication was delayed by a year. Uh, Oklahoma Press asked me to. They're starting a new series called Ways of War. Mm-hmm. They went you know, every country went a Ways of War book, and so coincidentally, a friend of mine, a former colleague of mine, who's now retired, was on the board, uh, uh, or editors, and he suggested me, and we uh, worked it out with the editor at Kansas. I would I would do the Russian one. It actually was the very first one. Um, and that's another kind of aspect of my career is that, um, well, some scholars, they start out with a narrow topic and they just mine that their whole careers, mm-hmm. you know, deeper and deeper. And they become... Mine has expanded. So I, my, my first book, you know, that was like social history, 1925, 1941. Okay. So now I'm going up and then... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the second one was the whole Soviet period, uh, and then some niche little ones. Uh, then they got into the imperial periods. Go back to the one I won the award for, the imperial Russian one. So I take it back to 1856 to war. So that that was a whole new getting to the imperial Russian military history. Uh, uh, so I, I just love the aspect of learning. I'm teaching myself these things. And actually, I learned a lot of things. I wish I'd known this when I was doing my Soviet books <laughs> Yeah, how things go far back. And then, so this one, I, I really look for those opportunities to like ex- broaden my base of knowledge. And and so um, I'm really learning whole new things and how to put things together. Um, uh, so th- that intrigued me to do that, um, to force myself to, to let, let's just see, you know, go, go back farther. And so, uh, so I'm what, actually working on another book to take go back to Peter the Great. So, uh, um, but so, so yeah, so, they asked me to do that, and so I I, I did it. Yeah. So what what sort of common thing threads did you have you have you caught through through that whole period? 
Uh, one you've already brought up, the, the social history aspects, yeah. uh, and this is not a social history. This, sure. I, this is probably like 10% of this is social history. So I'm getting into doctrine and strategy, mm -hmm. things like that, which is also new to me to understand that type of type of thing. <laughs> but to, that social history is like, man, they've been treating each other really bad. You know, and <laughs> For because a long time. Order, I'm not using the words <laughs> I really want to use. Um, they are, the Russians uh, are their own worst enemy, uh, I guess. Something I bring out of my history classes too is I teach Imperial Russian and Soviet. It's like, you know, they can't blame the world for their misery. They have to look at each other. It's like they are so mean to each other and, and so lack of respect for each other's well-being and dignity and life. It's like, oh my gosh. so that just goes as far back as I've been researching. That yeah. that's there. It just still follows through. And I have to do a shout out to the communists, the Bolsheviks. They did try to change that. They, they yeah. got to. But first, first, of course, kill all the class enemies. Then we can do that. And then yeah. uh, us poor exploited victims, we're now we're going to be nice to each other. We're going to have solid comradely social relations. And that didn't work out. <laughs> but, but, they, but but they meant to, you know. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that's kind of a glimmer of hope. And then they became actually the worst for a while. <laughs> so um, that's that's one thread is, is the, the, that. Uh, the social relations in the military between military and civilians is just consistently negative. And that's why this current book I'm working on for Bloomsbury Academic is that um, it's a war and society book, mostly society looking at the military. And it's like, wow, we don't like that. We, we love the army as an image, as a symbol, but please don't make me be in it or my kids. That sounds familiar. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds familiar. So uh, there's that. Um, what about doctrine and strategy? Is it kind of a consi consistency with doctrine and strategy, or is it some ebb and flow uh, with that? It's become more sophisticated. Some of their doctrines and strategy, well, the strategy kind of stays the same, like anybody else's strategy, um, uh, natural defense, you know, but also like, well, where can we attack and that will benefit us? Where do we need to be defended? Who, who do we need to be more respectful of and right. or who do we need to be more afraid of and, and orient our training and our resources uh, as those shift? Uh, but, but always prepared to attack somebody if we need <laughs> yeah. to. If, if it will serve us and we can get away with it, we want to do that. But I mean, one of the more interesting things to me about the whole strategy and doctrine thing, particularly it becomes really institutionalized in the 19th century when they have a, a really meaningful general staff that say, this is your job, come up with strategy and doctrine and prepare the army for the next war, plan for this campaign or that campaign or whatever. And they got really smart guys working really hard, come up with good ideas a lot, but you don't see it played out on the battlefield. Hmm. It's this big disjuncture between the thinkers and the planners and people who execute orders under the imperial period it classically it was because of um, a, a royal prerogative where the czars would put relatives or their favorites in charge of massive formations or war but the whole war is in charge your brother is going to be in charge of this or whatever and they were not qualified for that they look at the plans they're like nah i've got a better idea it's like these guys spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking this thing yeah. through pretty deeply. And some grand duke literally just like, ah, no, I'm going to do it my way. And it doesn't work out well. Sure. Uh, you see that a lot. Um, uh, how close were you to finishing this up when the Ukraine war breaks out? And uh, what well, what did actually, that change? What did that change in your, in your thinking? 
Well, I had okay. finished it before the group came okay. forward, uh, okay. as far as I was concerned. And then we have these artistic differences. Oh, so that's oh, why okay. I came uh, in. You need to add. The series gotcha. editors didn't like, uh, well, my version of the way of war is like, looking at this huge span of time, the Russia doesn't really have a way of war. And so they just kind of show up and don't follow the plans and muddle through. And that's not <laughs> really a, bunch a of way people. of war. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can't make that argument. And so mm. I, I kind of concluded that like, no, it's just kind of shifting uh, unpredictable um, changes, you know. I just can't find one constant thing that we could call a way of war. So they didn't like that, and um, so that stalled things. It's and, like this uh, is the first book in the series, man. We got to have yeah. a way. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand, but those guys, the series editors, weren't involved in the original contract negotiations. Yeah, the book I delivered met what they wanted me to do, so we ended up pulling it and putting it in a different series. So somebody else right now is working on. A Russian way of war book. Okay. Okay. Mine is, gotcha. mine, mine is in the commanders and campaigns. Oh, the command. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was the compromise that held it up a year, but in that, or more than a year, really. But in that time, the war broke out. They wanted me to do a chapter on the post Soviet era. And I was like, that's not really history yet. And so I stalled on that until finally um, we had some more reviewers look at it. When I shifted to this, another series and rewrote some aspects. I was did a word search way of war and just deleted all that, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and it turned out to be Jeremy Black again. Right? Yep. He looked at it and says, this is great. Publish it. Except you need to add a chapter on yeah. um, brings it up to Ukraine war. I was like, man, I was like really uncomfortable. Yeah. Getting very in the present. But like if Jeremy Black says that's what it's going to take to publish this book, I'll do it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and if you read that that chapter but I, I was so uncomfortable it's like but but i did again it's like i learned more stuff I did the whole um army i mean the 90s were just terrible for mm -hmm. the russian army i mean the yeltsin just slashed their budget slashed their numbers they're dividing it up between the different former soviet states oh, they're trying to get involved in yugoslavia was just farcical i yeah. mean right uh the tanks breaking down before they could even get there and oh. the idea behind it was actually very domestic politics that the yeah. army needed to do something to to, right. to say you got to fund us you got to give us money we're we're relevant in the on the world stage and yeltsin's like yes i'm going to do that and, and never did he had no intention to do it he had to create a whole new economy and get that going it's like the army was just um not a priority and, and there were no threats they didn't need it so um uh, there there was that disjuncture between the military and yeltsin his government who was actually filled with a lot of anti-military people yeah yeah uh, not yeah. pacifist, but just like you've had, you've been, you know, at the trough way too long at the expense of the quality of life of the Russian people. So they're pretty justified. So, but I got on top of that. And then the, the you know, the Chechen wars had to learn about mm -hmm. that. Like, again, we see the same thing as like, well, well, a continuing threat is like a lot of overconfidence. The Russian army is like, well, we beat Napoleon. We don't need to make any changes. Then the British and the French show up in the Crimea and that didn't work out very well. Or then, then you know, then it was like, well, we beat Hitler, and this is how we did it with this massive mechanized army. So that's we'll just keep doing that. We'll add nukes to it, whatever. But basically, stay the course. And so uh, I think it opened that last chapter. It's like nothing really changed after the collapse of the Soviet Union because the military didn't think anything needed to be changed. You know, they yeah. didn't lose the Cold War. Yeah, that's the politicians yeah. and right. the economy. Right. And like all the, and so they were very, very uh, overconfident. Well, of course, we saw that with the war with Finland. Um, first Chechen war, you know, I uh, think Gromov or Gra Grachev was saying, oh, we'll, we'll have this thing done in a few hours. 
You know, we don't need to plan. We don't need to do that. And I also want to, you know, to be fair, there are always people around these decision makers saying, time out, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, no. And giving them the right answer. Like, we need to take our time. We need to do the steps. And like, they always got pushed aside. Yeah. So there were smart, thoughtful people who could have got this done right. And they always seem to be pushed to the margins. Um, so Chechen one was a disaster. Chechen two, better, not good, but better. And the, the invasion of Georgia, that, that mm -hmm. was that was you know, great. But what, it lasted five days, you know. Uh, and so they think, well, that would be the same thing in Ukraine. But this time they didn't really plan that well. They didn't turn it over to the general staff. Like Putin and a handful of people, uh, very overconfident, uh, that sort of thing. But yeah, doing the Ukraine thing is like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm working through the newspapers. I'm, I'm reading Moscow Times and Medusa and I stories is like, you know, that's that's not really solid archival stuff. So I was yeah. very tentative in talking about that. What With all that um, said, you know, and the obvious problems with Putin now, do you think there's any scenario where his kind of stranglehold on Russian society can be broken and that there's there's a change in leadership? I've been thinking about that a lot, and I think the probably the some apt comparisons are like the, the, look at the wars that they lost, okay, how it didn't work out for them. Yeah, Crimea, World War One, okay, almost World War Two, and the big things that uh, for Crimea, World War One, and potentially now is the economy just didn't hold up. I mean, the, the Russian in, in the in the Crimean War, they just economically they couldn't sustain that. And, Part of it was foreign loans. They needed a lot of foreign money to, to buy munitions and mm -hmm. all that type of stuff. And, and the West kind of like cut off that at a certain point. And, you know, the, the Prussians wouldn't declare neutrality. Austria was like, you know, you need to wrap this up or we're, we might come in on that. So foreign, <clears throat> foreign people not involved in the war, but who were against Russia's war and economy came together and, you know, but also it took Nicholas first had to die. <laughs> he probably wasn't going to ever quit. But his son, like, well, that's that's his out. Uh, actually, Alexander came in and he's thinking, well, maybe let's check this out. Can we win this? And the, the fi Ministry of Finance said no. <laughs> uh, and that that was that same thing in the Russo-Japanese War. Um, they they had to finance that on foreign loans. And again, the rest of the world, the Western world was pretty much against them on this um, for whatever reason and collectively shut off the, the finances. And that brought Russia to the, the bargaining table. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, they also had domestic unrest with that. Yeah, right. Okay. So you had revolution in 1905, lack of foreign loans. The rest of the world of, that counted the West, Western world was like, no, you got to wrap this thing up. And then World War One again, economically they they couldn't do it, you know, they, they, not without just massive discont creating massive discontent at home. They did get foreign loan. I mean, the, the America was pretty deep pockets for the British and the French, and actually the Russians were third in line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on that, and so again, the economic effects on the domestic population and their ability to wage war to, to say what, you know, pretty much under, undermine hopes of victory because it was was the bolsheviks who pulled out of the war and they they were cut off from the money too but yeah they didn't really want that war so those three things you know the, the economy and its international relations with that and the, the domestic fallout 
So that's what I look at today is like, you know, that's what we really need to be watching is like how much discontent is going to be generated by the sanctions and by the, uh, particularly the, the, the finances. Yeah. And this is, this is smoke and mirror stuff when you talk about economists, yeah. you know, what their economists say, what our economists think uh, about this is like, but you get such radical differences of opinion. Uh, but is, is, I guess it comes down to quality of life is are enough people going to be, affected by this to such a degree that they're going to you know resist in some way right and take a big chance uh, i mean and something's just really irrelevant like prada pulling out of russia like <laughs> i don't think most russians ever shop at prada and give a damn about that right know? but hey if burger king <laughs> shuts down though probably not <laughs> what do you think brian I think, well, you know, considering we got to get to a faculty meeting, I don't think I know. Have a choice. See, you're 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 lucky, Roger. We've got a department meeting at twelve thirty, a virtual department meeting. Which I'd I'd love to keep talking about. Yeah, you know, we'd Putin, love to keep but, talking. But, but <laughs> to we're going to go talk about other less fun stuff. Oh. <laughs> well, it's, it's been fun, really. So I'm, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, no, well, no, we're not we're not we're not quite. We got we got to we got to run you through our, our rapid fire uh, ringer, and um, you, you should have talked to Lorian and Adam and and Brian Lynn about about this little bit. Uh, they, they could have warned you. Uh, so we're going to ask you 10 questions. All right. Uh, Brian will ask a couple. I'll ask a couple. Answer as best you can. And uh, uh, please just understand that because it's our show, we reserve the right to comment and judge on your responses. <laughs> All right. So, Brian, go. All right. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. What is the title of your autobiography? Serendipity. I don't deserve okay. it, but I'll take it. Okay, good. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, I did some Facebook stalking on one. you. Um, so tell me, what is your most memorable marathon? Uh, Helsinki, oh, 2018. Wow. Yeah. So you've done some uh, serious like travel for marathons. Uh, only four in ones: Helsinki and Stockholm. Okay. All right. I think it's Heather Sturr's trying to do like she has a list of of big city international marathons she's trying to do. Like you know, she's done London, I think, and Paris, and but. Helsinki and Stockholm. I bet those were great. What a, what a beautiful, yeah. They, they were different. Uh, they yeah. both started at like 2.30 in the afternoon on the hottest day of the year. So the maybe not time, so great. Like, I asked people like, is this a, is this a Scandinavian thing? Like, what, what is this about? <laughs> like, oh, this is like, I don't know. We don't know. This is, we don't do this in Vienna. Like, well, they got a lot of daylight, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez. Okay. Tolstoy or Dostoevsky? Tolstoy. Yeah. I was quiet. Why? All right. Why? I, I can't. I tried Dostoevsky and like, no, I just put it down and I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can, I can go with that. I, okay. I, I'm really looking forward to this next question, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know what the most expensive of the, these two is. Yeah. But what's the sadder story? The sadder story. Jimbo Fisher or Johnny Menzel? Uh, Johnny Menzel. Yeah. Did you see that um, documentary? The 30 for I think it was the 30 for 30 ESPN thing on him. I didn't see it, but yeah, yeah. Cool. hard to feel yeah. sorry for a multi-millionaire. Yeah, I know. yeah. I know. There's that, but geez, you know, yeah, you had all this potential, everything going for you, and so have you contributed to the uh, buyout Jimbo Fisher's contract fund? As much as I love Aggie football, I'm I'm, a, I'm from the generation that seven and five was a great year right yeah yeah and we were happy we had no pretensions about ever getting a, a national yep. championship we weren't burdened by that expectation and, and if we went five and seven but we beat ut it's yeah. a great year that's it's a good, good year, year. right yep. yeah like successful season so 
no, I'm not going to contribute to that. It's like, I think our younger generation, they need to just like a real Aggie knows how to suffer through these things. Right. Uh, with a smile, you know. So. Yeah. What do you think about uh, <laughs> Texas and OU coming into the SEC? Oh, I wish they weren't. <laughs> but too late. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. The whole thing seems like it's it's my the only thing I hope that happens is that we'll, we'll end up with a couple of super conference, couple of super conferences, or actually a Premier League, and yeah. and and the NCAA will be out of the football thing. If they want to run the other stuff, fine, but but just get them out of the football deal because it just seems so farcical, right? Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, like with Michigan right now, you know, and and Harbaugh's cheating guys stealing signs like that never happens. But anyway, well, like the Astros would never do something like that. No, no exactly. No, no, no I mean, right. and it was so low tech, right? That's yeah. what I loved about it. Yeah. Cash cans. It's a great way to do it. Yeah. All <laughs> right. Um, what are you binge watching? Uh, okay, so on PBS. There's a series called Professor T. Yeah, a, a, a Belgian opera. That okay. So, so do you, have you watched the English version too, or just the Belgian? I watched 15 minutes of it and said nope. Yeah, the Belgian <laughs> one's really pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I like that. All right. Yeah. What are you reading for pleasure? Uh, my hobby is reading uh, French history, and so my next one. I, I'm actually. I just finished what. Actually, a book about Russia yesterday, but I'm going to start uh, a book on the terror. Oh, tomorrow. cool. Oh, that's uplifting. In time for the holidays. Yeah. Well, we yeah. compare yeah. these things. It's like, who's <laughs> yeah. more terroristic? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have to say, when I was looking uh, up information on you, there's a couple of uh, places where you've given recommendations for uh, Russian history. And I'm going to definitely check some of those out. There's one about a little kid, I, uh, I guess a boy that... Uh, oh yeah, like, kind of becomes a martyr, and they like accuse his family of having killed him, and all this kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, so I'm I'm gonna check that one out. So good recommendations. Yeah, Comrade Pavlik. Comrade Pavlik. Comrade yeah. Pavlik. That's right. Write that down. Okay, how does Tito's measure up against good old fashioned Russian vodka? Anything's better than Soviet vodka. That's, that's, a, that's kind of a trick question because they, they did have different grades. The lower mm -hmm. grade, you'd see stuff floating around right. in there that didn't get filtered out. The higher grades, that's, you know, that was only available for you know government and party officials. The higher grade stuff was really pretty good. I mean, Stoli, you know, Stoli, yeah. homegrown yeah. stuff. Then there's a big drop off after that. But uh, yeah, I'd say it's a tie. I mean, Tito's, Tito's is, good. is pretty good. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Tito's and was it T Tower, Towered Vodka, Tower Vodka, I think. I think I've had that. They do pretty. I mean, Texas has done pretty good with, with that. Yeah. That stuff. Yeah. yeah. My my gauge for, for for vodka is, is it in a real bottle or a plastic bottle? Yeah. That's kind of where I fall. I, I only drink pretty. plastic. Plastic bottle vodka. <laughs> I put at Terry's the other the people I stay with in Statesboro. I pulled off. I was mixing some cocktails for everybody, and and I just went in the liquor cabinet and I just instinctively grabbed there's a vodka bottle of vodka and and it was in a plastic bottle, and I pulled it out and Terry's like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "It's vodka." And he's like, "No, no, no. That's what we put in the laundry to help get the disinfect the towels that we wash the dog with." <laughs> It's like, oh, well, why don't you put that in the laundry room where it belongs? Right? Oh, man. You should try some Maine blueberry vodka. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, my daughter, 
taught me about that. She went to the University of Maine. Oh, cool. Yeah, we were at a liquor store. I was going to bring a bottle of, of, of vodka back for my mother-in-law, who's a, quite an aficionado of vodka. Hmm. And I said, oh, this looks interesting. And my daughter says, put that back. That's what the college kids drink. Yeah. <laughs> like, You're right. Right. like, yeah, I don't even, I don't even drink that. It's like, <laughs> right, this other stuff. Yeah, that plastic bottle stuff. Got to stay away from that. Okay, this is my favorite question. One of my favorites that we asked. You get to listen to only one band or singer for the rest of your life. Who is it? Uh, Willie. Willie, well, the that's first, the first really, for us. Yeah, shout out. I'm a big right. country western dancer. Yeah, um, and, and country western music. You got the whole range of uh, soothing to edgy country. Right. <laughs> I mean, classic country. I'm totally classic country. And Willie's the, the the man. All right. Yeah. Well, you got a good tradition there of you know in a college station with with Lyle Lovett and er, Robert Earl Keane. I um, have met Lyle Lovett. Yeah. Um, my, my pick was actually, I ended up with Robert Earl King uh, is, is my, the guy I'd listened to, the, the, but yeah, Willie's hard to beat. Absolutely. All right. Getting towards the end here. Um, artificial intelligence. Are you terrified or excited? I guess I'm going to go with excited. Uh, maybe you don't get that from professors a lot, but I mean, in my research and the search kind of search engines and things that it, it mm -hmm. can do for us, uh, for it, it's, yeah, it's really opened up, I think, a lot of avenues to uh, make, make work more productive. Yeah, one of the uh, the stories on NPR yesterday was that they have uh, created an AI program that can recognize the individual faces of geese. I, I heard that. <laughs> yeah, so don't, don't, don't piss off the geese. They, yeah. they'll, they'll hunt you down. They know who you yeah. are. All right. Um, our last question. Last question is always the same one. Uh, you know, Bill's the native Texan. I'm from South Carolina. Uh, we we both uh, are fans of barbecue. For me, it's pork. For Bill, it is uh, it is brisket. So uh, I know where this is going with you, I think. But what is it for you, pork or, or, or beef? It, it's, it's brisket. Yeah. And I yeah. know it's one of the questions, like, where's the best in, in College Station? I would say it's it's my house. Yeah, really? <laughs> oh, all right. I'm wow. really proud. But when I get it right, it's just I, I have I actually start swearing. I guess this is, I can't believe this is so good. Yeah. <laughs> I, wow. I have, I have, at the end of the semester, I'll have a uh, either my grad students over if I'm teaching a grad class or the the, the top ten of my undergraduates from a class, and I'll I'll cook them up some barbecue. Yeah, you know, I used to good. do. I used to. I didn't used to. I used to do like German stuff. Um, and I've gotten away from it, but students really appreciate that and enjoy it. I need to get back to doing that. Yeah, having them having them over. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But all right. So well, Bill, where, you get where's one your, on your where's side. your go to other than your house? Where, is there a place you'd recommend in College Station, Brian? Uh, the, yeah, Fargo's. Fargo's. Okay. You probably heard that from from Adam. He might have said that too. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. No. He 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 went on like an extended treatise yeah. on barbecue. I mean, it was like 15 minutes. Yeah, go, go back site. and listen to his. Yeah, yeah. He's got a, a barbecue rant. Just expounding on <laughs> that was great. We opened up a can of worms there. Yeah, it was like he'd been waiting. He'd been He'd been waiting a decade to have an opportunity to say that. <laughs> yeah, to share his thoughts. Finally, someone asked. <laughs> but, oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Roger, thanks so much for, for yeah, doing this. Thank really you. appreciate you thank taking you. the time. This was really interesting. This was fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's my got, pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. I could talk about this for a whole semester. Yeah. Well, well, we wish you could do it for another hour and a half so we yeah. could get out of our department meeting. Yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate that you you reached out to me. So. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No. 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 You're. You know. There's. 
I was like, I right, we should we do another person from A and M? God, I know, I know. But no, no, no. It's Roger Reese. We need to talk to Roger. We got we got to talk to him. Yeah. He does, does different stuff. So, no, it's been fun. Really appreciate it. So, all right, Brian. All right. I guess we got to go. You know, see you guys, Bill. See you on another one. Bye bye. Roger, take care, man. Thanks. Bye-bye.